Hello and welcome to episode 42 of Blokeology, evidence-based health, fitness and lifestyle. I'm Dr. Ewan Lawson and in this episode I'm chatting to Nick Elvery. Now Nick has a fascinating background. Uh, He's now a coach and spends his time helping people make positive changes in their life. But he does have a very important and strong background of addiction and challenges he faced um, before he got to the point that he's at now. Thanks for all your support of the podcast. My apologies for the slight technical gremlin that managed to creep into the wires last week. Um, I actually managed to mute my side of the interview with Jason Fitzgerald, clearly the least important part, and Jason was um, completely audible. Uh, thanks, Tony in particular. Cheers, mate, for alerting me, and I got it fixed quite quickly. If you think you might have been affected, then all you need to do is delete it and re-download to fix it. So it's all good there now, and if you've not already listened then Jason has tremendous advice on how to go about getting into strength training, especially for running, but it all works for other sports as an end in itself as well. You can sign up for my fortnightly newsletter at blokeology.io forward slash journal. And if you do get a moment, please do consider leaving a rating or even a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as it's um, supposed to be known, I think, these days, as that helps with visibility and guides other uh, listeners to the podcast as well. So let's talk a little bit about this episode's interview. Now, one of the things that's really refreshing about Nick is that As I said already, he didn't always find it easy. He's not one of those people, one of those coaches who seem to have just a perfect life and it all came easily to him. He's had his share of problems. Um, His father was very unwell with MS, multiple sclerosis, when Nick was younger. And Nick used drugs as as a coping mechanism as part of that. And some of those, some of that drug use was really quite severe. He had quite a lot of years of addiction to drugs and alcohol. And we, we talked quite a bit about that, you know, his use of ketamine, ecstasy, cocaine, cannabis, um, and alcohol as well. Uh, Nick even ended up using crystal meth uh, out in Cambodia before he finally bottomed out and managed to get himself sorted. Uh, One tiny thing that I should uh, mention is that there is a little bit of swearing further on in today's podcast, but it's fairly minor, but I don't want anyone to get a nasty surprise. Nick has got tremendous understanding understanding when it comes to bad habits and how to make positive changes in your life. Um, And particularly, his view is very much that we are the sum of our habits. And he has lots of thoughts and advice on how to go about addressing those sort of core factors, particularly around our identity um, and how we can all we can use all of that to help us make changes. So I started off by getting him to tell us a little bit more about his past problems with addiction and bad habits. Yeah, where do I start? Right at the beginning. Let's start at the beginning. So the classic when I was 16, trying cigarettes because everyone else thought it was fun, right? And the peer pressure of doing what other people are doing because it's cool. We don't want to be left out, right? That led to progressively sort of getting harder and then just starting drinking when I was about 13 and doing, you know, all socially, nothing particularly negative involved with it, just, just having a bit of fun, experimenting. And as the years went on, uh, there was my dad actually suffered with MS and had MS my whole life. And it was really very much a catalyst for me to really put my head in the sand. And what I used to put my head in the sand effectively was drink drugs, you know, and and went down that route much more heavily. So there's like a sort of uh, an inception point, if you like, in my life where it my dad's illness started to get really bad. You know, he went from being very, very healthy and very effective in his job and successful and all those sorts of things. And then sort of slowly declined over the years and wasn't able to fend for himself. And, 
And I say my coping mechanism to deal with that was like, okay, I just want to get out of this. I hate seeing my dad in this position. So what can I do? Okay, I know I'm, you know, I've got involved in drugs and things now, so I can just use those to escape. And that just got worse and worse and worse over sort of a 10 year, 12 year period. And it just became, you know, from smoking a bit of a, you know, smoking a spliff or two uh, with some friends to like doing crystal meth on, crystal meth on my own in Cambodia, right? So it, it, it got pretty bad over that 10 year period. Um, so those two things really sort of came together, right? And that's leaving that world. It will be seven years on June the, June the 19th this year, it'll be seven years since I've touched any drink, drugs, cigarettes, or any of that sort of stuff, right? And coming out the other side of it, it's it's really taught me that firstly, we are the sum of our daily habits, right? That's what we basically are. Our outcomes and our goals are from what we do on a daily basis repeated, yeah? And it got me thinking, why do some people seamlessly, or at least it seems like some people effortlessly create change in their life, whether it's fitness, business, whatever, right? And then other people like myself for a long time struggled for years, because obviously, there were multiple times where I tried to give up using drugs and, you know, failed uh, again and again and again. So it, it, it really piqued my curiosity. It's like, why do some people do so well? And why some people, you know, not do so well. And interestingly, running in the background, parallel to these two sort of timelines of my dad having the illness and me doing all the drugs was this passion and curiosity for the human experience and why we do what we do. And as I say, why do some people go out there and deliver the results they want? And some people struggle all their life and never get them. And, you know, that throughout, I started off with Tony Robbins' books, like a lot of people do, you know, and Waking the Giant Within and all that sort of stuff and, and, and read just a vast quantity of content and went to seminars and seminars and seminars on YouTube, you know, like anyone that's interested in self-development does, right? They go head in first. So coming out the other side of this, it's like it taught me, okay, well, actually, there are some core factors that need to be in place for us to make change. And it doesn't matter whether it's uh, coming off crystal meth and and going a more healthy route or whether it's you know eating a bit healthier or make you know making some financial habits whatever there's there's some commonalities between all of these things right mm. and the core commonality is our identity right this is the thing that really strings it and holds everything together about who we are because you think did you buy cigarettes this morning no Right. Why, why didn't you buy cigarettes this morning? Because I don't smoke. Right. So your identity clearly, <laughs> or part of your identity clearly is, I'm a non-smoker. Yeah. Well, to be fair, I'm an ex-smoker as well, though. I have smoked okay. in the past. So that's a really interesting point, right? Because when you ask people that are, you know, just say, just given up smoking, there are two answers that they can usually give you for, oh, do you smoke? Oh, no, I'm trying to give up. Or I'm a non-smoker or I don't smoke, Right. And there's telltale signs instantly within those two answers of what identity they're still holding on to. They are either a non-smoker. So it's like, well, of course I didn't buy cigarettes. Like, that's just not who I am. Or they're, oh, I'm trying to give up, which means they're still a smoker, but they're trying to give up. And there's a big difference between those two. And it, that's the root of everything that we do. Every decision we make, like 95% of our decisions are planted in our subconscious brain, Right and subconscious mind, sorry. And that's given to us from a very young age. Like, I think the quote is, uh, Aristotle says something like, give me a, a boy until he's seven, and um, 
I'll make him a man or something. I'll, I'll have him for the rest of his life. I butchered that massively, but you get my point, right? The first seven to eight years are really our, yeah, our years yeah. where everything happens, right? And we're delivered, we're given to that by our parents, our social setting, our school, our government, loads of different options and things. So mm. understanding this, sorry, go on, you asked No, questions. I was going to say, I, yeah, the habits thing is, I think it's absolutely interesting, fascinating. What I wanted to go back to a little bit is before we get, we definitely need to delve into the habits thing. And <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. so much interest in habits now. And, you know, there's obviously, um, I was this, the work of Stephen Guise and mini habits. And uh, the big one now is James Clear, who seems to be yes. everywhere with his atomic yeah. habits, which looks to be like a straight ripoff of what Stephen Guise did. Not, not that he copyrights the idea or, or anything like that. It isn't not that he's, you know, it's the same kind of principles, yeah, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there are no way I'm suggesting anything inappropriate by, um, James Clear in that regard. But it's a clearly a massive thing, isn't it? People are catching on to this whole habit thing. I want to just put a little bit of flesh on the bones of some of your habits, your bad habits early doors mm. to get a real sure. feel for that. You mentioned alcohol, um, and you mentioned obviously crystal meth. Now, yeah. Is it, is it, is it, do they call it yabba? Is it yabba when it's, there was some yabba. word for, yeah, no. So yabba is a uh, is a pink pill. I've done that too, where you get in Cambodia, <laughs> in Thailand, those areas. It's okay. it's got some some form of it, but it's like a very impure, um, low grade, cheap version. Whereas ah. crystal meth is like the pure yeah, yeah. Um, substance. That's your Breaking Bad kind of glass. Yeah, kind yeah, of, exactly. Think people people bad, might yeah. recognise in that regard. Exactly. So yeah. I, I, I think I've mentioned in the podcast before. I worked in addictions, but um, over the years, but mm. it's mostly been alcohol dependence, I guess, but particularly heroin misuse, right, right, um, and injecting heroin misuse. And I guess that's mm -hmm. the main kind of uh, problem areas for illicit drug use in the UK, particularly. Yeah. So I was curious, what's your sort of alcohol history? Did you get to the point at which you, you'd, you'd regard yourself as alcohol dependent and you had to get away from that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fully. I mean, it, anything that would... It's interesting. I, I, I've always had a phobia of needles, really strangely. I don't know quite where it came from, but for whatever reason, I've had a phobia of needles. So I never went down the route of rejecting, which, thank God, you know, never never was part of my life. But um, I think really, if it, well, for me, it was anything I could use to just get into oblivion, to get away from life. So alcohol, absolutely, and drugs, like they were always synonymous. They were always together. There was never, well, sometimes there was one without the other, but most of the time it would be both together. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you mentioned straight away, you talk about getting away from your life. And I guess that's the, the, the thing I always think about using drugs is that, it's not completely irrational in that there's a bit of an assumption for people who don't use drugs that mm. people are just stupid, they're reckless, they're dangerous. Yeah. But actually, there are good reasons that people do use drugs. And I'm, this is, I'm not leading into a point where I'm encouraging anybody to use them, but <laughs> they, they, they make people feel, but I tell the medical students this, they make people feel good when they take them. You, you take a drug and you feel euphoric is the yep. classic sort of symptom. You feel confident. You feel for at least transiently, at least temporarily, you're like the king of the world. You feel fantastic. Now, yeah. obviously, there are terrible ramifications in many cases sure. afterwards, but it's not an irrational thing to do. And one of the things is about blocking things out. I get, and you mentioned straight away, and I'm not trying to turn this into a psych, you know, a kind of uh, on the therapy on session, the therapy or. session thing. <laughs> but clearly, the um, the illness of your father was a big part in your life. Oh, huge! Yeah, yeah, huge! Absolutely. And I think it's interesting the. Taking drugs is, is, is rational. There's a lot of logic to it. As you say, I agree. I think the difficulty for people to understand and get their head around is the addiction side of it mm -hmm. and the behaviors surrounding that of like knowing that it's not causing, you know, it's causing issues, knowing that it's breaking relationships, causing health problems and all the things that come with it and still doing it repeatedly over and over and over again. Right. Yeah. I think that's where the, 
the issue from the outside perspective of people that aren't in addictions and don't understand it, that's where it's, it looks like total insanity. Yeah, I think, yeah, absolutely. That's right. People just go, well, just, you know, that very much cultivates that pull your socks up. Just, you yeah, know, just, just stop. Just Why sort you just yourself stop? out. Which is ironic, really, because actually the only thing you need to do when it comes to being, you know, abstaining is there's a one rule just don't use drugs or don't drink, which is hilarious, isn't it? I mean, that is the only thing you need to do. But obviously, it's way more complex than that. And it's, it's virtually always hiding from something, covering something up, running away from something along those lines. That's why typically we get into these addictions, whether it's crystal meth, alcohol, food, you know, sugar, sex, whatever. There's, yeah. there's something that's going on there, maybe from trauma from the past or whatever, or like for me obviously it was my father then that needs to be dealt with really that there's there's a big thing there that needs to be dealt with which is why this these behaviors and habits are happening yeah so leading into so just to get, just get a bit more of a feel for it which what i mean if you're happy to talk about which drugs you used obviously you weren't sure. an injector which is as you say that's a you know that there's an amplification with injecting in terms of addiction that makes it really challenging it's very hard to get away unscathed from an injecting habit in terms of mm. your physical and psychological health i think that's the real difficulty yeah um, i'm very grateful for for that um, you, know. you mentioned crystal meth other other stimulants um that's obviously a type of amphetamine um yeah heroin. I mean, a quick a quick rundown it <laughs> was you know it was the classic smoking weed hash when we first when i first started um a lot of ecstasy and pills at one point clubbing in london and then ketamine a huge amount of my life big mm -hmm. portion of what i did was ketamine um that was probably the most the drug i took most because it's just complete oblivion mm -hmm. um and then cocaine a lot of cocaine and mixing the two and then mixing all three and mixing you know cannabis ecstasy uh ketamine and coke and you know do all of those together obviously with bucket loads of alcohol um smoking cigarettes every day as well of course um and then stepping on from there a bit of acid but nothing you know a few times nothing really you know that carried on too much um speed played a big part and um, then crystal meth at the end i mean crystal meth was very uh very short period of my of my life it was about three three and a half months in cambodia um and that was sort of the, the pinnacle if you like um and then it sort of you know it sort of went up and down and tried different things and you know had different things at different times different quantities so but that that was generally i mean ketamine was the, the probably the biggest part of my life ketamine that's really interesting i can talk about that for a minute because i think it's mm. something that most people won't have had any won't have i mean it's very much in the party drug scene and sure. it's perhaps been something that's been much bigger over the last 10 or 20 years before that yeah. not so much so yeah. ketamine is I, my exposure to ketamine as a doctor has been that it was used as a it's a pre-hospital right. drug yeah. and when i was in the army we had ketamine available so you could use it as an anesthetic yeah. agent if someone was say trapped in a car and you needed there was difficulty extricating them or something like that they yep. needed the leg chopping off you know that kind of an a, you know an on the scene anesthetic because you don't actually lose your airway with most as you do with most anesthetics so the person you don't have to take over their airway and have all that complexity yeah and they're just totally out of it there is a dissociative anesthetic i think is yeah. what we call it isn't it yeah so exactly. you do, and, and there's some interesting evidence around ketamine and its use about people you know very high risk of trauma and accidental injuries i think I and mean, that's not very surprising because it, obviously it's an anesthetic agent if you get injured you're just completely unaware yeah um and um there was some interesting recent evidence and I, this is not something that you need to tell us about is that actually people have used it regularly got problems with bladder problems there's been terrible mm. ketamine ulcerative bladder problems that have been discovered in the last few years 
Yeah, I think um, also stomach ulcers as well. I think right. there's a lot of uh, different options available. <laughs> you know, lovely, yeah. lovely side effects. I mean, I'm, I'm very lucky to have escaped uh, all of that. I mean, I say my my life is very healthy now, and I yeah. yeah so how did the ketamine issues. come? Does it come as a liquid? You just took, you swallowed? Yeah, no, no, no. So it actually comes as a liquid. Smells like rose water. It's how they import it. Actually, is in rose water bottles, or at least they used to from India. Um, and you get it in liquid, and you a liter, and a liter would have uh, basically make about fifty grams of powder. You just literally put it on a plate. You can either put it in a microwave, or uh, you know, like over a pan of water, and the plate on top, and pour it on that, and it just slowly evaporates uh, and turns into a powder, and you crush it up and and snort it. Right. Because I mean, the, 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 obviously, the ketamine we normally use was injectable. So I, yes. you gave it IM rather than I now, think IM did, rather than IV. People did inject it straight, you yeah. know, um, from a liquid form. But again, luckily, I didn't. I didn't go down that route. So and you've been clean for seven years, or so. But you perhaps were just at the tail end of that sort of party drug scene, like GHB. Is it GHB? I'm going to say GHB. I'm getting it wrong now. But that kind of that that those kind of and yeah, I think they were. Um, as you say, that I was just, my party scene was the tail end, and those were starting to come in at at yeah. the end of when. That. all those sort of novel psychoactives yeah, but um, yeah. tremendous potential because interesting that you're the type of person as well that would never present to a substance misuse service in the uk for example you, there's almost no there's very little in the way of formal nhs services yeah. or medical yeah. services for helping people that were having addictions and yeah. problems like yourself it was it's it's dominated by heroin use really a little bit of crack use particularly if there's injecting drugs but very little of that sort of party scene yeah Good quote, very much get out of hand. So the big question is, Nick, what happened seven years ago? You know, yeah. the times that you tried before to stop, yeah. what yeah. suddenly did you, what was your, and you talked about identity early on then and yeah. habits, but what was the, suddenly the thing seven years ago that enabled you and gave you the kind of, um, I, I guess, just gave you the, the ability to stop and move on? Well, it was actually, um, it was the uh, first three steps of the 12 steps sorry program okay what those that was the catalyst for me for changing direction dramatically and, and never using it again and it, it's for anyone that's unfamiliar with the 12 steps the first three steps are basically getting a handle on and understanding that you are powerless to your addiction you have no control over it and it gives you a really good insight into how bad life has got and that for me was all I ever needed. I, d- I d- didn't do any more than three steps. Um, that was for me was two weeks of rehab. And that taught me everything I needed to know to say, you know what, right, this has got, this has got beyond bad. Because I like an addiction to a fog. It's like when you're in it, like everything that's going wrong and all the things and relationships you're bre- you know, damaging and all the health issues that are happening seem just sort of seem hazy and fog-like and it doesn't really impact you right whereas when you start to really get a handle on that it's like oh hold on the relationship with my mom is awful you know the the relationship with my friends like you know there's so many things that i just started to see the reality of that enabled me to go down a different path Right. Interesting. So the 12 step program is a little, I mean, I wouldn't go as far as to say it's controversial, but it's not everyone's cup of tea necessarily. And I think that's perhaps because some aspects of it have had quite a strong spiritual, you yeah. know, religious element to it. Yeah, Though a lot sure. of people don't necessarily interpret it that way. Yeah. Some people definitely do. Yeah. Um, but it has, it, there's no doubting it's success for an awful lot of people. 
I think the interesting thing is, and talking about identity a little bit earlier, is one of the things that happens with 12 steps, and I'm not bashing 12 steps. I don't bash, I, you know, I'm not interested in saying this is right or wrong, because mm. ultimately there are a lot of people out there that have got great success. And obviously, you know, for me, it was the catalyst. Mm. Um, uh, you know, whatever works for one is, is, is the right remedy. But one of the things that's interesting about the 12 step program or NA or AA or a lot of those, those fellowships is, when you go to a meeting, the first thing you say when you speak is, hi, my name's Nick, I'm an addict. Or, hi, my name's Nick, I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. Right? I had the luxury of being able to say both, right? <laughs> and it's interesting, isn't it? Because what are you doing there? You're reinforcing an identity. Mm. You're reinforcing the idea that I'm an alcoholic or I'm an addict. I don't consider myself an alcoholic or an addict anymore, right? Now, it doesn't mean that I'm just going to jump back onto drink or drugs a bit later and see how see how it goes. I know that that route for me is not the route to go down, right? And it leads to all sorts of disaster. But if I wake up every morning and say, ah, oh, I'm an alcoholic, I better not drink today. What is that doing to us? What is that doing to our mindset? What is that doing to our subconscious? Because ultimately everything that we, if we tell ourselves over and over and over again, all the time, every day, then that that becomes us eventually, right? And there, there are more effective methods to getting into subconscious, which is what I you know, teach a lot of my clients mm. as well. But ultimately, if you carry on telling yourself, this is who I am, this is who I am, this is who I am, then, well, like the genie says, your wish is my command, <laughs> and you become, right? So it's, it's interesting. Um, and again, I, I want to make it clear that I'm not taking away from the 12-sit program because a lot of good comes from this, right? And it's ultimately what works for you is the right method. But it's interesting, and when you when you start to get the idea about identity and start and starting understand the power of it, everything starts to click into place. Like diet is a really really good one. It's like people, and I've been there, you know, over the years. Sugar was a big issue for me, you know, with drugs because it fired very similar parts of the brain and all that sort of stuff, right? And it's like, well, if my identity is losing weight, it's hard, it's difficult. You know, I, I lose weight, then I always put it back on and I struggle with this, that and the other. And that's your identity. It doesn't matter what actions you take. You're always going to snap back to this identity. And I think that's part of the problem with habit change. And I've read um, Atomic Habits recently from James Clear and obviously Charles Duhigg's work and all, all those sort of other things. You, you're right. There's a lot of similarities between them, slight tweaks. The problem is what they say is it's about if you do this action enough, you will create this habit, which is true. You do anything enough, it's going to become you eventually. But if you haven't tackled this programming, the, the subconscious programming and the identity of who you are, then you're going to snap back to that identity. One of the, so one of the things is how do you, how do you, how do you encourage people to tackle that identity? I mean, clearly in like places like the USA, people having therapy, going to therapist or other parts, mm. perhaps in parts of Europe, it's much more normal for people to perhaps explore their identities and explore their pasts and yeah. talk about those things, in effect, have some kind of psychotherapeutic intervention. Sure. That's kind of a not, well, I, I say it, and I'm kind of basing this purely on my, what I watched on television, is <laughs> I, and what I've heard other people say, is that I, my, my sense is that there's a relatively accepted thing to have a therapist and go to them regularly. That is not something that people in the UK particularly do mm. as routine. But you don't necessarily have to go to a therapist to address those, of course. But no, what, I, what, what is, what's your sense of how you go about starting to help people broach what their identity is and how that feeds into what they do and how they behave? 
so just touching on that point, I think it's important to mention that if someone has major traumatic issues, then obviously that's medical conditions that need to be dealt with in a medical setting, therapy, doctors, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's, it's important we distinguish between these two, right? There's probably more than two, but you get my point, right? Mm. And then we're looking at other people that just want to change habits. You don't have any psychological issues or mental problems or that sort of stuff, right? So if we're looking at the people that are not don't have those concerns, then first thing we need to understand is the we need to educate them and get the knowledge around how the subconscious works, the basic understandings of it, because it's obviously very complicated and way over my head from a lot of the in-depth side of it. But there's simply a subconscious which runs 95% of our daily habits, right? And we're just like a Tesla on the motorway on autopilot for the majority of our life. We get up in the morning, we do the same routine. We, we have the same thoughts, most you know, 30,000 thoughts, I think it is a day. And we pretty much have the majority of those same ones we had yesterday, the, the next day, right? So we're very much on autopilot. So once you start to understand that actually, I actually don't really have much control over my life. Like we think we have control, but the Max Planck Institute in Germany actually did an experiment where they put people under a scanner and they showed uh, they gave them a little trigger to be able to press a button, right? And they could read the blood going through the brain. And they showed that seven seconds before you physically take an action, your brain had already made the decision, yeah. right? So we think we're in control of what our life, what we're doing in our life. We're really not. We're we're controlled by our subconscious programming, which we, as you said at the beginning of the interview, is given to us from school, education, social, parents, etc., at a young age, right? So once we understand that, then we think, ah, okay. So actually, if I want to change my identity, firstly, I've got to understand that I'm not in control. Secondly, I need to bring awareness to what my current identity is, because if it's automatic, then we probably don't know, right? So there's exercises we do, and if say take diet as an example, because everyone can relate to that, right? We look at what are the belief systems, what are the things that you've been told, what are the things you believe around exercise, could be finance, could be business, whatever, right? So then we get clarity, and we get awareness to what the current situation is. Then we say, okay, well, I know what I know how it works. I know why why it works and where I was given that information from. I know what the current setup is of my of my you know my belief systems. What do I actually want to achieve? What are the outcomes I want in life? Whether it's finances or health or fitness or whatever, right? What are the actual goals that I want to attain? Once we have an idea of that, it's like, well, what identity would we require? to make those outcomes a possibility. Because as we've already said, if you you take diet as a great one, if you change your actions, which is what people do, they look at the behaviors of what needs to happen. So I need to oh, no, cut my calories, go to the gym. That's the normal nonsense that most people talk about when they want to talk or lose weight, right? And we change the behaviors, but then we revert back to the old ways of doing things because we're not addressing the identity, okay? So it, it's it's clearly a step of getting the understanding of how it works, knowing what the current setup is, understanding what the future you want to achieve is, and then figuring out what the identity required to make that happen. So for someone that was wanting to lose weight, you know, my identity is this. I get up at 4.30, I actually go up at 3.30 today, right? Every day and I go to the gym. <laughs> and people ask me, like, why do you do that? I go, because that's what I am. I'm a healthy, strong, fit human being, right? And part of my thing is, I get up early, I go to bed early as well, and that's what I do. Yeah. Right. Now obviously it's different for everyone. I appreciate it. most people don't get up at 4 30, right? I get that. 
<laughs> no, I've talked about this in the podcast before, and I have no problem with people getting up early. But the key thing is, you've got to go to bed early. Yes. And I've said this before. It, the miracle morning bullshit is yeah. bullshit if you don't go to bed early. Yeah. If you go to bed at, four, at 12 o'clock it's, and you get it, you have four hours sleep. It's crock of shit, and you're only getting four hours of sleep, yeah. you're screwed. You're yeah, absolutely I ruined. I actually went to bed at seven o'clock last night. Yeah, just so exactly. Knows. And then yeah. that's fine. And you're probably missing, all you're doing is sitting around in the evening and watching crap telly like most of us. Well, this is it. So I've got some project-based stuff at the moment and I work much more effectively in the morning, yeah. right? So for me to drive to the gym, uh, any time after sort of seven o'clock, there's a lot of traffic. So it takes me twice as long to drive to the gym and twice as long to drive back. So there's an extra hour added or half an hour added and then when I get to the gym at a busy time, I have to queue or wait for the machines that I want to use and the, the weights and stuff. And it's just, it's mental. Whereas I get in at four o'clock or five o'clock, then there's no, there's none of that. And it's just, and then I can get back home to the office and I can just work because yeah. I get, I get so much work done before like nine o'clock, well, before seven o'clock for most people have even got out of bed. I get a lot of work done and I'm very focused on that. So for me, it works. Now I don't have kids. I don't have, I'm single at the moment. So I, I appreciate that my circumstance is way easier than other people's, but uh, you know that's a different conversation. It's a strategy for <laughs> for who you are, right? That works. So yeah, absolutely. I think the habit thing. Go back to that. And I I really, I mean, I hundred percent agree that the whole thing is that all those little habits that groove. We all are on automatic pilot. Those habits are grooved into our basal ganglia through repetition, and we don't have an awful lot of control over the things we do in the day. And it's, we, well, we think we do, don't we? Well, that's we that's the cold con of it, isn't it? Your yeah. brain is stiffing you in that regard because yeah. it's making you think you're choosing to do this and choosing to do that. And actually, very few of your decisions, whether yeah. it's choosing to get a coffee in the morning or have a pastry with it, or whether yeah. it's choosing to go for a run or to do some weights or to do a bit of yoga, most yeah. of those you are not in control of. There's, a, there's, I mean, there's a really interesting wider public health point about poverty and other things as well, actually, and inequ health inequalities that people are. People in certain political ideologies will say they just need to sort themselves out and, you know, poor people need to do this and go out and get jobs or don't, yeah. not eat, you know, behave in certain ways. Yeah. But actually, it forgets the fact that all of us have very little, um, in fact, executive control over that type of thing. Yeah. But it's a really interesting point that if you, the identities you set yourself up as, I'm not the kind of person who, I, my identity is, I'm the kind of person who runs regularly. I'm sure. the kind of person who exercises regularly. So actually, that makes it a lot easier when it comes to habit change yeah. and to move towards it. Yeah, because it's just a no-brainer. It's like like the smoking example. When you say to someone like yourself who doesn't smoke, why didn't you smoke this morning? Well, I'm a non-smoker. Hmm. There's no like, oh, but, ooh, let me, you know, it's just straight down the line. That's who I am. That's what I do, right? And there's so many things in my life like I'm like that now, and it's taken time to figure that out. Right. And, and a lot of the processes I use with my clients is using sort of self hypnosis and actually getting into the subconscious in a really effective way. Because, you know, affirmations, for example, people talk about affirmations, right? We say, Oh, I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to be healthy. Going to be healthy. Going to be healthy. Well, it's not going to do anything for you, right? Because that's not how the mind works. It needs imagery. It needs sound. It needs senses. It needs, you know, done in a, in a specific way. It's not difficult. But it needs to be done right. And as you say, repetition is the, is the mother of all learning, right? With anything to do with changing habits and brain, there is a, people say 21 days, but we know that's nonsense. And then they say 67. Well, we know that's not true because actually it depends on so many variables of who you are, what you're trying to change, how you're setting it up. There's so, there's too much complication within it to say it takes this amount of time to make a new habit. It's just nonsense. Um, but it's, it's, yeah. So for me, it's fascinating. It's understanding this identity piece, I think is the core missing 
for a lot of people's change in their life. And it's it's one of those like scratch your head type things like, but I've tried everything. Why do I still struggle to lose weight? I've lost the weight and I put it back on. Or why do I still struggle with this, that or the other, whatever it is for you? And that for me is the missing component. And I know you do coaching work and you work with clients. Is that kind of, would you, I mean, I was going to ask what the biggest problems you think your, your clients face. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's perhaps, I know how you address them, but I mean, it'd be interesting. I think, what, what do you think the biggest problems people that who come to you are struggling, they do face? And it sounds to me like obviously identity is perhaps the way that you go about trying to help them address those. I think it's the best way of explaining it because uh, people can understand it in a very effective way. And it, it makes sense for a lot of people. I think for me, the, the biggest thing that people struggle with and was for me for so long is the, the conversations in our head, right? Because if we don't have a handle on that, everything is difficult, right? And the things my brain used to tell me, I mean, I would never repeat to anyone. I, I think the, uh, the two things I love about, two sort of sentences I love about uh, the brain and the mind is uh, the mind is like a, a, a bad neighborhood. You should never go in and there your own. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, you know, having control on your mind and having control now when i say control in your mind i need to be clear here because you don't control your mind you can control your reactions to your thoughts right and i think this is the thing it's like people try and say oh just forget about it and try and get rid of those thoughts well it's not that it's having control over your reaction that's the key and this is the big piece for me that a lot of people don't get because we're never taught it really unless you dive heavily into nlp or um hypnotherapy or those sorts of you know, ideologies and CBT, and there's loads of other you know, methodologies that you can use. You're never really taught what thoughts are, what feelings are, how they work, and actually how much control you can have if you choose to, right? And I think for me, uh, as simple as it sounds, one of the key things that people can learn is you can actually stop and have a little conversation around the conversation you're having in your head, right? Mm. And you can, instead of letting it playing on autopilot and just saying, oh, I feel bad and, you know, go down that negative spiral wherever that takes you. And for me, it was depression for a long time, right? It's, you can actually jump in, jump in between that and go, mm, okay, all right. So you've, you know, you're saying this, the thoughts in my head are saying this. Well, that's not actually true, is it? Like, here's some evidence to suggest that that's not true. And I, that's actually not very helpful for what I want to be doing. So how about I choose this thought instead? Now, very simple concept, right? And there's more to it than that, obviously, right? But it's huge when you get that ability to be able to jump in between the, the, the trigger, the cue, whatever's going on, and then your automatic response, which is what it happens. You know, someone cuts you up in traffic. Cue is the cutting someone, you know, you being cut up, and then your reaction is getting on the horn and swearing, right? There is no awareness in between those processes. But when you actually stop, and start to teach yourself and meditation is a great way of getting into that sort of mindset and into that way of dealing with things, right? When you actually get the ability to stop and get in, put your head in between those two things effectively, right? Then you have a tool and some systems that allow you to start retraining your response to it. Absolutely. The, um, and you're very much, I, the, the cognitive behavioral therapies, and I, you know, I've only, I'm not a psychologist, I, but so CBT is very much more, as you say, there's a lot more to it and a lot more varieties of it. But uh, that's exactly it, isn't it? It's taking some of those thoughts that you're having in your head, recognizing they lead to certain behaviors, but just taking a little bit of recognizing that you're having them and you're falling into that spiral. 
is incredibly in itself can be very valuable. And certainly, depression is an obvious one, but anxiety is perhaps one of the ones where it's most clearly yes. a problem. That yes. and I, I find myself, I, I, you know, like everybody, you get anxious from time to time. Mm. And mine is usually when I've had about two or three too many coffees, yes. and I suddenly decide, I suddenly realize I'm having really this sort of catastrophic, anxious thoughts about my children. Yeah. And stuff happening to them and yeah. i'm like hang on that's you know and you have to so you actually it's very easy i could very easily imagine how if i'm not a person who suffers terribly from anxiety in that regard but it's easy to imagine how you could be somebody who you just then let them run out of control and actually go right i really need to stop this train of thought yeah. and think about something else because at the moment it's just leading me to feel terrible which and, is why which is an interesting point you bring up because it's a big part of what i teach as well it's not just about the mindset and the subconscious which is obviously a key component of what we need to do to change but actually it's the lifestyle factors being a personal trainer as well which is something that i did a while back allowed me to understand the um, the lifestyle factors and what part they play on our biology our physiology and our, our and our psyche as well right is when you eat crap food, especially high sugar food is a good prime example, and caffeine as well, mm. it has an effect on our biology. It has an effect on our, 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 you know, our mental attitude. It has an effect on so many aspects that we don't really understand, or a lot of most people don't really link the two together. So for me, like there's a three, this three stage component. It's getting clarity on what the client wants, what anyone wants in life is super important. Knowing what you want means you can actually go and get there, right? Mm. Once you've got that clarity and you're excited about that future, then it's a case of, okay, well, we have a look at the identity and figure out what needs to be, you know, what the identity needs to be to go and make that happen. And then let's support that with sleep, for example. Like mm. if you were, if for me, the most important performance hack is sleep. Yeah. It's hands down the most important thing. It, you know, it, it decreases your carb cravings throughout the next day, for example, for one little thing. So if diet's your thing, like sleep and the Chicago did a study that showed, um, just the difference in two hours sleep. So five hours, sorry, three hours sleep, five hours to eight hours sleep over two groups showed a 55% fat loss difference, changing no other habits, no exercise or diet, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I would have sleep pretty much at the top of my list. I think it's a superpower yeah. if you get it right. And I know there yes. are people out there who just don't sleep well, and that's a slightly mm -hmm. different thing. But if you're somebody who can sleep perfectly well, and you're just making an arse of it through your own behaviors, yeah. then you vote, then you really need to, you, you know, you, it should, it could be the number one thing to address. And I think, if, yeah. you know, I don't know if there's any, I don't know the evidence for this. I'm pretty sure I would have to look at, it. I find it affects my motivation the next day in terms of doing exercise, all those sort of things. It just has such a, it's, it's everything. such a and bonus to get it right. To touch on your point about whether people get it right or wrong is, unfortunately, the modern environment is not set up well. <laughs> you know, we talked about this before about light and the impact that light has on. Yeah. And these devices, you know, these mobile phones and these laptops and these iPads that we are glued to. I mean, that's an addiction conversation under itself, right? You know, that's a whole whole different podcast. But the, the modern world, unfortunately, is not setting itself up well for sleep. And a lot of people think they have sleep problems. And I'm not talking about people that do have genuine clinical issues. Yeah. But a lot of people put themselves in or close to that bracket. But actually, I've worked with clients who've done that, put themselves in that box and putting blue blockers on their face, which is a, you know, red glasses to block blue light later on at night and doing a few other lifestyle hacks completely eradicated what they thought were clinical issues yeah. and again i want to make it clear like i'm not talking like i can cure clinical sleep issues like insomnia but a lot of the problems that people think are you know uncurable are actually curable it's just we need to revert back to how nature intended for us to do stuff rather than man
So if you had to pick so three top things that you'd, you know, in terms of generally for most people to get right about like life hacks, if you like, mm. sleep would be on the list. By the sleep, of things. sleep and mindset. So when I say mindset, I, I incorporate sort of the, uh, the identity subconscious and how we go about things like the mindset, the attitude we have to life. So that would be sort of one component, uh, sleep absolutely. And then diet. Yeah. And diet doesn't need to be much more complicated than stop eating crap. <laughs> I, I mean, I, it's really, I, I'm, I'm in full agreement with you that actually you, you, you really can boil it down to that more or less. If you stop eating the crap, your life, your diet will be immeasurably improved. Yeah. Uh, to, I mean, the extent that you require. Yeah. I mean, there's much more complication into it if you want to get into that. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, you know, if, talking about what type of fats and how stuff in process and whether it's organic and all this sort of stuff that plays a part. But for most people to see a massive performance gain from and health and all the things that are positive for that, it's just a case of stop eating man-made sugary rubbish and just start eating real food. Like that's the yeah. only goal I have on a daily basis is eat real food. Yeah. That's it. Like I'm training to put a little bit of extra muscle on the moment. So I eat a little bit more protein and I have a little bit more carbohydrate post-workout, but it's all real food. I don't take any supplements in that respect. You yeah. know, it doesn't need to be complicated. And I think that's what we as a species love to do, don't we? We love to overcomplicate things and, and make it all seem like we have to do a million different things. And actually it's quite simple a lot of the time. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, yeah, I think that's the absolute perfect point to leave things. You obviously do a lot of different things. I know you do the coaching work. You've got a podcast yourself. Tell us yep. a little bit more about where we can find you and all the things that you're up to. Yes. Yeah, so head over to dailyhabits.co.uk. That's where all my podcast stuff lives. Um, the most exciting thing that we're actually about to launch in the next few months is incorporating everything we've spoken about in this interview, actually, but in a weight loss setting. Mm -hmm. So like we talked about before, I mean, I used to run a weight loss business. And one of the key components that I missed off was this identity. And was this subconscious reprogramming, right? So we're actually launching in a couple of months a program which is addressing all the lifestyle hacks like sleep and stress and all the things we talked about, but actually addressing the reprogramming of the subconscious and the identity. So when you actually start taking the actions, they become part of you and you actually get the results long lasting. So that's what I'm super excited about, which will be launched in a few couple of months. Um, but for yeah, for anything me, just head over to dailyhabits.co.uk. We'll make sure we get links up for that. Nick, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. No, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. Okay, well, thanks for listening. You can find the full show notes at www.blokeology.io. Uh, you can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blokeology at www.blokeology.io forward slash journal. Sign up and I'll make sure that I send you the Healthy Bloke Action Plan. It would be enormously helpful if you've enjoyed the show, if you've got anything out of it, if you could pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or just leave a rating, that would be incredibly helpful. And any feedback is very welcome. And so you can leave comments, send email, or make contact via Twitter, Facebook, and the usual social media channels, all of which can be found at blokeology.io. Thanks again. Thanks again.